0: Psalm 134, one of the shortest Psalms out there, but wow, what a powerful song. Thank you guys. Well, welcome everyone. Happy Lord's Day. Something I realized today that I re- didn't realize is in 1994, Congress passed and made today a holiday called Parents' Day. I didn't think that was a thing. I thought it was just a thing like, you know, Taco Day or something like that. But it's a real holiday, so kids, go out there and celebrate your parents. Um, Another message is the Tuesday after this next one, August 2nd, we will do our second dinner service for Grace resources Uh, if you would like to take lead on this just let me know and you have it typically what we do is is we make it real simple we go find a restaurant that serves good food and we bless them by having them prepare upwards of like 60 meals we go pick it up and then serve it to those in need works out real good so let me know And today is the last message after all this time that I get to give on Isaiah. Um, We will be almost done. Next week Al will finish it and then we move on to Galatians. And in the introduction I had pointed out that only Psalms is referenced more in every other book of the Bible than Isaiah is and the sheer wonder, the wonder, of how God used the prophecy in this book to describe just immediate events that would happen then, like Israel, that's the 10 northern tribes, were going to be wiped out forever. Um, That was amazing. Um, Jerusalem would go into exile and then return was amazing events 150 years in the future where the the ruler Cyrus was called out by name saying that he would release the the Jews to go back to Jerusalem and then talking about the prophecy of our Messiah in his first advent and the prophecy of his second advent and the events will be both glorious for us, but not so glorious for god's enemies so the original audience that got to hear this was the people of God in Jerusalem they believing apart for God apart from God, most of them serving their own passions and desires and not listening to all the many warnings they were getting from God's prophets like Isaiah. Isaiah is wrapping up his prophecies here as he's getting close to the end of his book by ensuring the people understood and they realized they would be taken. Taken from Jerusalem. Then his goal in this is to provide them a reminder that when they look at the dark days, if they look at the temptation they would, be, they would be exposed to in this new land, the goal was to remind him that there was a promise of a better life in the future for those who listened and obeyed God. Those people that did this are the ones we're gonna to see today. They're the ones that were humble, the ones who feared God, and trembled at his word. Isaiah today is bringing together points from all throughout the previous prophecies he's had. We will hear of things to come that are hard to imagine in today's world. Last week we looked at joy, and this week some of the things we will see are peace and comfort. Today we're going to cover the first 14 verses of chapter 66, and we're going to break them down this way. We're going to see verses 1 through 4. Verses 1 through 4 says, Those who have chose their own way chose destruction. Those who have chose their own way have chose destruction. Verses 5 through 14, we see sudden destruction and instant glory. Verses 5 through 14, sudden destruction, instant glory. Let's look at the passage, 66. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? and what is this place of my rest all these things my hand has made so all these things came to be declares the lord but this is the one whom i will look he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word he who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man he who sacrifices a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck he who presents a grain offering like one who offers pigs blood he who makes a memorial offering of frankincense is like one who blesses an idol these have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations I also will choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them because when I called No one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen. But what they did was evil in my eyes, and chose that in which I did not delight. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Your brothers who hate you and cast you out for my name's sake have said, Let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy, but it is they who shall be put to shame. The sound of uproar in the city, a sound from the temple, the sound of the Lord, rendering recompense to his enemies. Rejoice with Jerusalem. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son. Who has heard of such thing? Who has seen such things? Shall a land be born in one day? Shall a nation be brought forth in one moment? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she brought forth her children. Shall I bring to the point of birth and not cause to bring forth, says the Lord? Shall I, who cause to bring forth, shut the womb, says your God? Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for you. All who love her, rejoice with her in joy. All you who mourn over her, that you may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling breast, that you may drink deeply with delight from her glorious abundance. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. You shall nurse, you shall be carried upon her hip and bounced upon her knees. As one who his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. You shall see, and your heart shall rejoice. Your bones shall flourish like the grass. And the hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants, and he shall show his indignation against his enemies. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we just thank you for every promise that you just gave through us through Isaiah in these first 14 voices, four verses. May you be magnified. May we glorify your name all the more after seeing this. How at the end of this incredible, incredible book, we still see the same consistency, the same promises, the same glory that we will never, ever begin to fully realize until we're there. We just thank you so much for that. Holy Spirit, just please come now. Quiet our hearts, quiet our minds. Help us to to focus on you and your word at this time. We thank you so much. Amen. All right, verses 1 through 4. Now, we're going to look at the components first of 1 through 4. Then we're going to combine two of these components together. And then we're going to dig deeper into 1 and 4. So we're going to take a little bit going through this. Um, Component 1, the great God of heaven and earth. And we see the hymn in verse 1. It says, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Component 2. This covers the rest of verse 1 and takes us through verse 2. And also covers two themes. The first covers what or where this house is. And who has a house for God. And the second is a reference to the person God looks to who he has chosen or has regard for. We see God asking, basically saying in this passage, what can man do for me? He says, what is this house that you would build for me? And what is this place of rest? All these things, my hand is made. Then God moves to a but. It's in regards to man. It says, But this is the one to whom I look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Okay, component three. We see four acts of permissible worship, and in contrast, we see four acts of cultic worship component 4 it covers the end of verse 3 and goes through 4 we see an accusation of unresponsiveness an accusation of unresponsiveness that matches this matches Isaiah 65:12 it matches Isaiah 65:12 now let's combine and look at the first two Basically the first two verses we have history here in the Bible of this. We have a history of man building a house for God. Let's look at it. It's we see it and it's and it's spoken of in Solomon's prayer at the dedication of the temple. And that's in 1 Kings 1 Kings 8 12 through 29. 1 Kings 8 12 through 29. This is the dedication of the temple. This passage provides the background for understanding of the temple and God dwelling there. If we jump to verse 47, he, he being Solomon, asks a very crucial question. But will God indeed dwell on earth? That's his question. So just hearing that question and looking at the rest of verse 27, you get the idea that the answer is leading to a no. But Solomon, in his wisdom, starts earlier in chapter 8 and walks us through the yes. First, he starts in verse 12 by stating the temple would be a divine dwelling and you read verse 12 and you think I'm on the wrong track because you're saying Bill this doesn't say divine dwelling it says he will dwell in a thick darkness but that is God's divine dwelling if we look at even just a few passages we will see where that that enforces what Solomon said so Psalm 1811 Psalm 1811 Psalm 97:2 and then Leviticus 16:2 So Psalm 18:11 tells us thick darkness is his covering Psalm 97:2 tells us thick darkness is all around him and Leviticus 16:2 says says God to Moses that he would appear in a cloud upon the mercy seat and why does he do that it protects us or protected them back there the undivine humans from from seeing God because they could not and live secondly in verses 14 through 21 Solomon Solomon explains his divine mandate from God to build this house thirdly in verses 22 through 26 Solomon gave thanks to God that the promise, that the promise God made to his father David had been kept. With all that background, the question in verse 27 was never in doubt. God will only live in that house because he promised he would. So that is why in 66.1 we see this. He does not deride the earthly home, but asks what or where did you say it is? Where is it humans? And that was in regard to the temple. But think of today, think of all the man-made ch- churches, how big they are, how opulent some of them are, and that's just talking about our valley alone. And. And God is getting a message across to even us today that, hey, I'm having a hard time finding him. And why is he having a hard time finding him? And it's not a statement that's saying God despises them. What he's getting across, though, is the message that that's not his focus. The buildings and all that is not what he's focused on. The house, thus the house, takes second place to the words, but this, in verse 2, but this. His focus is revealed to us here, and it's for the humble. It's for the ones who, with a trembling reverence, for him and his word. So now the second pair of components deals with the use and abuse of cultic worship. So the first of the two deals with the use and abuse of cultic worship. And then two describes people who do not tremble at his word. It was and it is permissible to build God a house. And God, as great as he is, will live there But the focus, divine desire, is the person that trembles at his word. God will not associate with those who disobey him or seek to worship themselves. Knowing that the people would soon depart, forced departure, and head into exile, knowing Cyrus would be called to release them to return home. They would come back to a devastated land, torn down. And we see that in books like Ezra and Nehemiah. And and they would be required by their elders there, the ones that came in, to rebuild the temple. So Isaiah is no doubt giving the people a proper perspective for undertaking this task. Alright, so let's start. Let's dig deeper into these first four verses. So verse one, this is, again, for Isaiah, it's not unheard of. This is the only place in the Bible where the earth itself is called a divine footstool. The only place. In first Chronicles twenty eight two, first chronicles twenty eight two, Psalm 99 5 and Psalm 132.7, 7 the house itself or the Ark of the Covenant is the footstool so while that was a picture of God's mercy and God's foot on the mercy seat this as you can imagine is so much bigger it's so much bigger it's a picture to us of the magnitude of God that he encompasses all the heavens so that even his feet or even one of his feet rests on the earth God is also telling us that the house the house is not the focus it's not the object of his focus Samuel in 1st Samuel 5 15 22 that's 1 Samuel fifteen twenty two, tells us God prefers sacrifice or obedience over, I mean, prefers obedience over sacrifice. Obedience over sacrifice. So God will dwell in a house, but we cannot consider him or his power reduced by this act. He is and always will be the majestic God who built the heavens and earth and filled everything in them, and he will then, now in the future, rule over all. And because of grace, because of his grace, God will ultimately make his home, ultimately, with his people. Verse 2, the doctrine of God is further protected here because verse 2 tells us that God dominates the whole universe everything is his workmanship and it owes its existence to him then the phrase in verse 2 but this is the one to whom I look the to whom he looks is the humble the people who willingly follow God take that lowest place, only want to serve him out of fear and reverence, they love his word. Verse 3, in verse 3 we see a point, counterpoint of proper sacrifice and what it really looks like to do it with a disobedient heart. Last week, I shared from Jeremiah chapter 12. And let's look at the second part of Jeremiah 12 too again. It says, for you are near in their mouth, but far from their heart. And in this verse in Jeremiah is the example of what we see here in verse three. The people of Jerusalem were in a habit of just going through traditional religious motions but that was not where their passion was their passion was for themselves and not God in today's world we might call this the Sunday show because it is a show and then once it's over so is their spirituality for the week words here is like is like or is like one who is actually Isaiah condemning the sacrificial side of religion. So he contrasts here the lawful with the sinful by setting these actions side by side. We hear him saying, we see him contrasting killing a bull, which is lawful, with killing a man. Or in these sinful acts, it was not a man. In these sinful acts, It was a child, a small child that they would sacrifice and burn. He compares the lawful with the meaningless. One killing a a lamb, to to fulfill God's law of cleanliness, and then one that kills a dog. We have the unacceptable. We have one bringing a grain offering, again required by law, and the other offering pig's blood unacceptable and the last one is a memorial offering of incense and the other offers blessing to an idol now we see this actual part right here we see this in almost the whole entire chapter of ezekiel 8. ezekiel 8 basically covers this and we see men at one point men actually actually seventy elders who knew better, getting together, secretly going to a room that was dug out for them, and performing all kinds of heinous acts. Then, then, these men no doubt were seen in the temple earlier in that day acting righteous. Acting righteous. So God is telling us we can't serve two masters, and their passions were not for God. They came up and did the ritual act, then they went and did what they wanted. And we know this because you do what you work hard to get, and these men went to great lengths to serve their lusts and passions. So we know just performing ritual conformity Is a stench to God God demands obedience okay so the last part of verse 3 and into verse 4 these have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations I also will choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them because when I called no one answered when i spoke they did not listen but they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which i did not delight here we see words chosen and delight and chose and did not delight We can say it this way concerning their choices and delights. As for them, then they. As for them, then they. Meaning they went and chose what was not life-giving. God answers that with, as for me, then I. As for me, then I. God is stating their promise of life punishment. Basically, they're saying, "Can this really be so wrong to do this? Can it be wrong? It's so it's so uplifting what we do." But what they are doing is actually, and this is a strong word in the Bible, it's an abomination. It's an abomination to God. So yes, it is wrong, and yes, it leads to destruction. God's promised Harsh treatment in the beginning of verse 4. It means the sudden, unexpected onset of judgment. And we see that before, right? We see the the year of the Lord's favor. The time between the first and second advent. And then we see the day of vengeance. This is a picture of that day coming. This is God saying, He will choose their swift, and sudden execution so we know they chose these idols these abominations and they prayed to him to be their protectors that's their protectors and God is saying your worst fears will not even compare to the reality coming to you we will see it in verse 6 by the way and you passed you passed on real protection so divine justice will come come upon them and they will be unable to avoid it so by just going through the motions and God's requirements that didn't save them and by doing the evil that they loved didn't offer them any protection Verses 5 through 14, 5 through 14, we have sudden destruction, instant glory. We're going to continue to look at the two groups that God has divided the world into right here those who tremble at His word, and those who seek after their own passions. I've mentioned this before, but now we get to see it with a little bit of a twist. The two groups are not merely coexisting. So that bumper sticker you see on people's car saying let's just coexist, that's gone away. That's gone away. The ones who hate God are now extending that hatred to God's people. In verses 10 and 11, God tells the believers how to act in this environment. And in verses 7 through 9 and 12 to 13, they describe the supernatural acts which will bring believers into the new Zion and explain all the comforts, all the comforts we will have there. Verse 5 also points out here that the mocking believers will experience points out all that the mocking believers will experience before all is said and done in this current world. The enemies of God will taunt the humble by asking to see their joy as they are no doubt being tortured. As the believers are being persecuted, they will mock them just like they did Jesus. So let's dig into this. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Your brothers who hate you and cast you out for my name's sake have said, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy. Tremble. This is the same as verse 2. Brothers here depicts a group that formerly belonged to the same family. Hate here means, well, it means hate. The picture of tension in the community runs through these chapters. These are the two camps that God has set apart, and the loudest and largest of these camps are his enemies. The humble of God are excluded because the evil ones have persuaded themselves here, get this, that they are the true members and the word tremblers, the ones that tremble and show reverence to God, have no real claim to him. For my name's sakes, this probably explains the motive behind their excommunication of the believers. They will be I believe so truly whacked out that they believe false teachers and they believe they are on the right path and God is honored in their so-called obedience which is in reality disobedience we see this today in what I call I call slogan Christianity you have thousands attend sold-calls services. To hear a man in a $10,000 suit talk about this life coach named Jesus. A life coach. They are told Jesus wants them to be rich, never feel sickness, never feel pain. In fact, I watched one that told his followers that God told him he needed a certain type of private jet it was only $54 million, and they needed to supply that money for him. This is actually a man-centered religion. Man wants to be rich and never feel pain. While Jesus never promised this, he promised a cross, which in that day they understood exactly what that means. That meant not just death, but a horrible death. Paul the apostle is an example of this. If Paul would have continued in his life, in that day he would have had a very comfortable life. As a Pharisee, he was very outstanding. He would have been in the upper echelon, probably even been a high priest one day. He would have never have lacked for anything. But Jesus made a call on his life, and he had no choice but to follow. So Paul actually wrote about this, this man-centered religion, to the church in Corinth. He was seeing false teachers come in in that day, come in start to lead the people away from the foundation they were given. Who knows what these false teachers were offering? We don't see that, but it was not in the way of salvation from Christ but it must have been something that was comfort for we know they were taking money from the church there while paul was still working with them and refused to take their money and paul let other churches supply his needs so paul starts explaining to these people how these these wolves that are come in are false and explains the road A Christian takes, starting in 2 Corinthians 11.23, talking about these people. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. This is 2 Corinthians 11.23. 2 Corinthians 11.23. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I am talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hand of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods and once left for dead, once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked, shipwrecked. day and night, I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, danger from robbers, dangers from my own people, danger from Gentiles, anger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me, and of my anxiety for the churches. Who is weak? I am not weak. Who is made to fall? Am am I? And I am not indignant. Paul was talking about this suffering, and it it wasn't a suffering you go through a normal life. It was a suffering imposed on him because he was being obedient to God and fulfilling the great commission. The mission Paul was on, and this goes against all the teachings of the watered-down churches. He was on to seek converts and bring them to Jesus. He was focused on the same thing God was focused on the beginning here. He's focused on those who would be the ones that followed Jesus. And Help them with that call in their life. The watered down churches, they do seek converts too, but it's primarily to seek their money. It's so funny in preparing for this. I Colleen and I have have friends that we've tried to talk to about the church they go to and how it's watered down. And and their daughter is big in this church. And I just saw a Facebook post by her. There she's following a, a female pastor. And they're talking. And I told Colleen, just reading this sounds like Corbin. We saw in the New Testament how the Pharisee said, you know, you have money and you're, you're obligated to help your parents. But if you call it Corbin, that means it's like an escrow account for God, and you can't give it out to other people. This young lady was, was listening to this female pastor who was completely butchering Galatians chapter 6, verse 5. And I thought, how cool, we'll be going through that. But they're talking about helping people with their loads, but you can't help people with their, with their daily load, meaning sin and needing to come before God and she's quoting it and saying hey it's cool you can help people with with their burdens like of of needing maybe a rent check or needing grocery spot but you don't have to do it all the time you can tell them, 'You you know what I am caught up in my own stuff right now it's biblical for me not to help you that just hurts so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send her a quick little note. It's probably not going to go over very well, but I'm praying about it. But it's just wrong, this water down. It's like you're not even... Paul gave us an example of the Bereans, right? He said he gave a passage, and the Bereans heard it, then they dug into the Scriptures to verify that he was right. Folks, you have to do the same thing. It's easy just to go on and hear something, but you're not to go out and repeat it. You're to dig in and find out if there's value and truth in it. This young girl just heard a reason that she doesn't have to help people and said it was biblical based on this this nut that has a platform on the internet. So we need to have roots and a foundation in faith. These people don't, and they chase after whatever feels good to them. This means they are rapidly heading to hell, and they have no clue. The word tremblers subscribe to a joyful expectancy, and the haters of God throw this in their face, and will throw this in their face, in a taunting manner Second Peter 3 3 2 Peter 3 3 says knowing this first of all that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing following their own sinful desires so if you're not on their bandwagon they're gonna make life rough for you and this is real now I see it, like I said, from friends and their, and their family. The goal of this slogan Christianity is to appear so full of the Spirit for a few hours on Sunday. Like, how many people can you get on stage during worship? Finding out the best brand of a smoke machine to use. What is the coolest attire that you can wear Do you use a hat, or do you not use a hat? Um, And while wearing these clothes, does it help you still jump up and down? And then how cool and unique is your own special language that you say and make sure other people can hear that you have it? Or does anyone start to, to copy your words and you need to think of others? These people, I guarantee you, will not ever, ever experience the hate or the persecution that God's word tremblers will. And, you know, the hateful exclusion that is coming to God's believers is what Isaiah experienced his whole life. If we look back at this book and remember what we read, or whenever he was never taken seriously in the big things right remember early on when we got the first prophecy uh, of Jesus war was coming the northern tribe and and uh, and another kingdom was coming to do battle to take over Jerusalem and make them All team up as one and go to war against Babylon. Isaiah met him in chapter 7. God used Isaiah to meet him and to offer Ahaz anything that he could imagine, anything he could imagine. Nothing was too big. Say what you wanted. Ahaz passed. When we went over Isaiah telling the leaders, Look to God. Don't look to the Egyptians to help you against the Assyrians. They passed on God, and they chose out of their own desires to worship the Egyptian gods and form alliance with them. It's funny, as we went over in 28.9, the leaders were worshiping an Egyptian god in this alliance. They were way past drunk, way past drunk. And they asked to whom Isaiah would teach knowledge to. I gave you the picture. I gave you the picture of these Jewish leaders. They said this as they were covered in their own vomit and filth, talking to Isaiah, taunting him like he was a mere babe compared to them in their wisdom. In 36 and 37, we see Hezekiah was in defeat when surrounded by the Assyrians. And when God did act, Isaiah was proven right. But later, later Hezekiah proved foolish concerning the Babylonians. But God says, It is they, it is they who shall be put to shame. This is an emphatic statement from God. He says, they will reap shame for their actions. Their city and temple will be gone, and they alone will be exposed as objects of divine wrath. Verse 6, speaking of divine wrath, verse 6, the sound of an uproar from the city, a sound from the temple, the sound of the Lord, rendering recompense to his enemies. Rejoice with Jerusalem. Let's look at that verse this way. Listen, uproar from the city. Listen from the people. Listen, God is repaying. This verse is full of emotion. It signifies the start and the quick of the day of vengeance God's enemies did not tremble at his word but they will quickly tremble at his wrath when their accounts are settled God and his people will begin the full and just as loud as they did in punishment God and his people will rejoice Verse 7 through 9 will show us that things that are impossible with people are possible with God. It says in verse 7 Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son. Here we have again, like last week, a symbol of Eden restored. Think about that painless birth. It means the curse, because that was one of them, has been removed. We see a picture of a mother giving birth with no labor pains. The child has arrived, and the mother experienced no discomfort. Verse 8, Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall a land be born in it one day, shall a nation be brought forth in one moment for as soon as zion was in labor she brought forth her children this verse tells us the picture gives us the picture of an instantaneous city and nation this will be far from any experience anyone has ever encountered this is a true Act of God the fact that God is showing this miracle of an act of a painless birth something that a mother cannot fathom and then the sudden appearance of a new city and nation will cause the same mind-blowing reaction it says shall a land be born in one day shall a nation be brought forth in one moment the stress on these on the words day and moment are the same and it's there to bring home to bring home the picture of instant occurring god is telling us that when he brings glory to his people it will be as sudden as the judgment on his enemies that we see in verse 4 and it will be as complete the nation And the city, as we see the completeness of the judgment in verse 6. People, God has emotion despite what others may say. Jesus showed emotion on earth, he taunted and scolded his enemies, the Pharisees. God is using this verse to do the same. He is mocking his enemies that doubted him in verse 5. He's asking if they question his coming glory and find it incredible. They have questioned or better yet, they have ignored God's word and will not face the incredible miracle God is leading us to. His coming glory, and the picture of this new world coming into existence as painless and as quick as a supernatural birth. This will be reality. The reality is God's children will enter into this world. This will be something that is unheard of. It's humanly impossible to man, but possible Only because it is a work of God. Verse 9 Shall I bring to the point of birth and not cause to bring forth, says the Lord? Shall I, who cause to bring forth, shut the womb, says your God? Let me give you those both in another way. God says, Do I beget? And then close the womb. We see two truths here. We see a process well advanced, but not brought to completion. This shows us that God will not proceed with his promises up to a point and then abandon them before they're fulfilled. The overall meaning is, God says twice in verse 9, that he will not begin what he will not complete. In each verse, the pronoun I is stated by God with emphasis. So because the I in verse 9 is God, and God is in charge, what can fail? The birthing process, mentioned here again, is like Isaiah is being directed to wrap this book up neatly. We see it was mentioned earlier in 49:21 in Isaiah 49:21 by God's people. It said, "I was bereaved and barren, exiled and put away, but who has brought these up?" In 54:1 in Isaiah it says, "Sing, O barren one, who did not bear, break forth into singing and cry aloud you who have not been in labor for the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of who is married who is married says the lord and then in the fourth servant song in isaiah 53 10 it says he shall see his offspring he shall prolong his days and the will of the lord shall prosper in his hand. So we see the barren being, being blessed. And we see that in the Bible and other parts too, right? God is, is faithful. He heard his people. We have examples all through the Bible when his people, the ones that trembled at his word, have sought him. And even though they were barren by the world standards, they had not been able to give birth, God listened to their prayers and answered them. God will bring forth his people into this new world, and Jesus is promised to see his offspring. God says twice in verse 9, This is from him, and since it is from him, he will not change his mind. It will come to be. And I want to reiterate that the birthing process here is just symbolic. We will not go through the birthing process to get to heaven. But if we did, it might be a kind of unique picture. Imagine walking around and seeing all the people you love with these misshapen heads for a couple weeks. Just thing, Verse 10 and 11. Verses 10 and 11 link the future in 11 with the present in 10. In the present, the call is to identify with Jerusalem the picture of the church. Verse 10 tells us to rejoice in her, be glad for her, and to mourn with her over her sorrows. As the body of Christ, we need to be looking in anticipation for the blessings to come. To rejoice with Jerusalem is to share in that look forward. To love her is to prize what she stands for. The city where God dwells in holiness, mercy, and the law. We are to live now. We are are to live now as if we live in the benefit and we understand that we live in the benefit of divine mercy. We need to enjoy the richness of this divine fellowship and ensure that we learn more and more about Jesus so we grow in our strength as word tremblers we remain humble and obedient. The phrase to mourn over her. Ezekiel 9.4 9, gives us a picture of this. And the Lord says, pass through the city, talking to his angels, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men, who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. It meaning Jerusalem. This is a picture of divine selection. We need to live as if God would tell Ezekiel to put a mark on our forehead. We need to mourn for the church that is apostate. We need to Mourn when we hear of abuses in the church or by children, by church leaders, like we heard through the Southern Baptist Church here recently. The church should not be compromising God's law to please people, to get them to attend. But they do. We need to mourn that. We need to mourn the churches that are a benefit to people who name God in their mouth but they live far away from him God does not burn in their hearts I actually heard a man describe his church life as a menu you know if I wake up and I want to go to a good church and hear a great story I go to church a If I wake up and I desire to hear good music, I'll go to Church B. We need to pray for all these people like this, who just don't know what real faith is, or have no problem compromising what God says. Because they're going to do that. When the world bumps up against them, they're going to bow to the world, and they're going to live in that type of environment. By identifying with the church, by growing in knowledge and demonstrating obedience, we are participating in the blessings coming to the church now and in the new city to come. For when you experience the full reality of the miracle birth stated in verses 7 through 9, the picture we see is being comforted and fed at the bosom. I mean, what else does a newborn need, right? They they're in their mom's protection. They're getting comfort and food. And this has us looking forward to verse 13 at this mother's comfort. Verse 11 glorious abundance means that Jesus will supply Jesus will supply all of our needs now, but just wait, just wait. In the new city, there will be a total supply of everything. Verses 12 and 13. 12 and 13 match the picture of the birth in 7-9 and the examples of a nursing child and comfort in verse 11 in verse 12 we have big powerful words like for and behold 12 says for for thus says the lord behold i will extend peace to her like a river and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream and you shall nurse and you shall be carried upon her hip and bounced upon her knees. Four explains why all these promises can be trusted. Behold means pay attention to God. And he says he will extend peace like a river. In 48, 18, In 4818 God told his people oh if you had paid attention to my commandments they would have had peace like a river the good news is that all that was lost by disobedience will be restored all that was lost will be restored again we see the the term and the meaning of peace being traced through all through isaiah and we see it coming into a promised conclusion you can trace it from forty eight twenty two, the one we just covered in into now so in 52 7 we see it how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who bring good news who publishes peace. In fifty-three five and fifty-three five we see peace in the first fourth fourth sermon song. Fifty-four ten says his covenant peace will not be removed. Fifty four thirteen says all your children shall be taught by God and great and great shall be the peace of your children. Fifty-five twelve says for you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. Fifty-seven two the righteous are taken away from calamity and enter into peace. Fifty-seven nineteen says God says peace to the far and near. 5721 promises that there is no peace for the wicked. 59.8 says, The way of peace they do not know. And then 6017 says, Our overseers will be peace and your taskmasters will be righteousness. So he's bringing peace to a conclusion in his book. And we know peace will be an overwhelming blessing. And it will be in conjunction with the overwhelming riches of the nations. We see this in the picture of the term overflowing stream. 13, as one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. Hopefully you can identify with the comfort a mother provides. But the picture here we can get is of knowing an earthly example of a mother who provides comfort to her child when it is needed. And that example that we see here on earth will be better in heaven when it is Jesus comforting. I thought it was, it was interesting last night you know, knowing this would be what I brought today. We had Chris and Chelsea came over by last night after their day at the hospital and they were talking. She was sharing how the nurses were so focused on task driven while Chelsea and Sean were focused on each other. So Sean was focused on mom on hanging out with her whether he fed or not. You got the idea he loved being with his mother. He would like suckle with her, then just maybe hang out. And while the nurses are focused on, no, he needs to latch on, he needs to go. Chelsea finally explained to him, leave leave us alone. Leave us alone. And and hits that picture here, right? Sean was enjoying the comfort of his mom. The warmth, the supply, the smell, everything. Verse 14, Matches 5 and 6. The mockery of those who dismissed this future glory as something that would never be seen is countered here in 14. You shall see, God is stating fact, and once we see our hearts, we'll rejoice, and even better than rejoicing, we will flourish. 14 says, You shall see, and your heart shall rejoice. Your bones shall flourish like grass and the hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants and he shall show his indignation against his enemies. Heart and bones are symbols of the entire body. So you will see your entire body and soul will flourish in the new Zion. The phrase, the hand of the Lord. This is cool, this is cool. On that day when we are in Zion, we will have full knowledge and we will understand and see that God had a hand in everything that took place. We will be there and we will have a deeper knowledge, deeper knowledge than we can say on this earth that yes, we know God had a hand in everything. It will be amazing for us to see all the pieces put together in the puzzle and understand and know why God did it and that it worked perfectly. For it's one thing to have head knowledge, but at this time we will have full knowledge and full understanding. The last line of of 14, his indignation can also be said, he will be furious with God's enemies will receive their punishment in a moment. It will be swift, but it will last forever. So we see themes wrapped up and coming to a close as Isaiah, this book itself, is coming to an end. While his prophecies ended, Isaiah, after this book, still experienced extreme hatred by God's enemies to the point where the king at that time, Manasseh, ordered his brutal execution. But then we will experience, along with Isaiah, this new land we will experience this new joy understand peace and we will rest we will rest in this new comfort instead of God's enemies who have been warned over and over they will experience swift harsh punishment from a furious God and they will experience this forever what an awesome blessing to see the hope God is promising us, and and then next week, as we finish chapter sixty-six, we will see judgment. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we just can't thank you enough for your promises, for your amazing love for us. We can never get, begin, never begin to imagine the glories that await us may we never lose sight of your promises may we never lose sight of you as our Lord may we seek you may we seek you may we never think that we can take a pass or a break may we long for your word and tremble with respect out of love for you we thank you for this beautiful message that you've given us in the entire book of Isaiah, how it rings true to this day. We love you so much. Amen.